the world is going to move to this this version of decentralized status where you can verify who who gave the status to whom and people will be able to build new versions of, of professional social networks like LinkedIn, because I actually think average people are a lot smarter than they get credit for. And I think that the average person kind of is like, yeah, I, I think this is all kind of BS, like from both sides. And I think Washington, that's, that's why Congress's approval is extremely low. To think that the, the average person is just like, is completely incapable of like consuming information on the internet, like you might as well just like, Okay, let's go all the way back to the printing press and just ban books. Like, it's like, sorry, like information is dangerous because people aren't smart enough. You can have a world-class team, world-class product, but if the market is not interested in it, it doesn't matter. You can have an okay team, an okay product, and if the market is just taking off, that, that's all that matters. Twitter. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com to get started. Before we dive into Moment of Zen, I want to tell you about my new interview show, Upstream. Upstream is where I go deeper with some of the world's most interesting thinkers to map the constellation of ideas that matter. On the first season of Upstream, you'll hear from Mark Andreessen, David Sachs, Balaji, Ezra Klein, Joe Lonsdale, and more. Make sure to subscribe and check out the first episode with Mark Andreessen. The link is in the description. Hey, hey, Dan, where's, uh, where's Antonio? I mean, you know, hit podcast and, and the guy just doesn't show up. Yeah, it's, uh, it's NFT uh, New York City. So he's um, uh, running his company. Um, well, what's, what's re really interesting is, um, you know, he's at M NFT NYC, which there was a there was a kind of a funny joke. I mean, you know, bear market for crypto. So you got to take it on the lip. So, so someone took a photo of the, the beginning of um, the, the conference, like the, the, the sign outside the, the convention center. And, and they were like, this, these are like the, the, the Japanese uh, soldiers that, that kept fighting World War II after it was over. Uh, I think Nikita Beer had made, made a similar joke at some point, but this was like doing it with the, with the sign. It was like one guy going in, whereas like last year there was a line around the door. I actually think there, there are a decent number of people there. And like, arguably you'd say it's like, it's higher signal this year. If, if you, if you believe in NFTs, I'm, I'm happy to make a steel man case uh, for NFTs. If you believe in NFTs, this is the higher signal year, right? Cause these are the people that are willing to be contrarian, willing to be laughed at. Um, and th there's a similar, similar story in the, in the previous cycle, right? Like there were like five companies, um, 
that were all doing marketplaces for NFTs. OpenSea was one of them. And OpenSea was kind of like the last one standing. They were, they were just persistent enough to, to stick to the original vision where I think everyone else kind of flitted off to do other things. And then when the market decided that NFTs was interesting, OpenSea was kind of the only way to tell. Same, same story for Coinbase. By the way. And this is actually advice I give to people, you know, people are like, oh, crypto's like dead. Like what, what should we pivot to AI or all these other kind of things? And when my first couple of years at Coinbase, uh, every company that Coinbase was competing against in the kind of like 2014, 2015, 2016, they all pivoted to something different, right? So Coinbase was the only company that was focused on public public blockchains like Bitcoin, Ethereum. And um, when 2017 came around, it, w- it was literally the only place you could buy a, a meaningful amount of, of Bitcoin or ETH. Like that, that's actually why like Square and Robinhood and some of these others got into the business because they were like, wait a second, like, this company is the only place there's a massive amount of demand for for cryptocurrency and they get to charge two percent and so i my my long-winded story here is that like it's easy to laugh at the people who are going to that conference this year but but the reality is is like if we look back in a few years and and some of the stuff that's happening in nfts if you just kind of think it's like it's, it's a digitally scarce object and if if digitally scarce objects are a macro trend especially in a world where Apple releases a headset and potentially kicks off a, uh, a whole VR, AR thing. And, and we're basically just spending more and more time with screens attached to our eyes. Um, you, you could make an argument that digitally scarce objects are, are going to be some type of status thing. Uh, maybe not monkey JPEGs, but, but the, the format and, and the concept itself. Then some of the people at NYT NFC this year are, are, are actually potentially building big companies and, and important things for the future. And Antonio is out there grinding, trying to sell to them. So uh, I think it's a good use of time. Yeah. If, um, if, if you're early to a tech breakthrough and the rest of the world doesn't see it yet, and you could sort of survive until they do, and, um, you know, th- then like you'll be very successful. Um, now, the challenge with that is surviving until they do, you know, it could be three years if you're lucky, like OpenAI, or maybe it's a bit more, but, or it could be, you know, 20 years if you're unlucky and you were building in VR, you know, uh, like a decade ago or something. And so, there, but the, um, but yeah, just to agree with, with your point there. Our friend Mark Andreessen has uh, a blog that he used to have, but then he decided not to pay for the hosting. I, I don't know. Um, but now it's kind of like you have to Google around for like the Mark Andreessen archives. And uh, there's a post, the only thing that matters. And I, I think... Every entrepreneur should read this, and, and and frankly, every investor. Like if you're just trying to kind of think about like a new trend, um, whether you're you're building in it or building, you know, what you're hoping is to be a trend, or or likewise investing in it. And he brings down every behind everything. There there are, there are kind of three things. First is the the team, right? So it's like you have to have the people actually go build, and then they build something, the product, and then there's this thing. That's a little bit more nebulous market. And if you just kind of run through a couple of the versions of this, uh, you, you quickly realize that there's only one thing that actually matters in, in, a, in a mega successful outcome, right? Like you can always build lifestyle businesses in, in weird niches anywhere, but if you're playing the Silicon Valley game, the outlier game, the I want to be a Google or Facebook or Airbnb or, or whatever, you can have a world-class team, world-class product. But if the market is not interested in it, it doesn't matter. You can have an okay team, an okay product. And if the market is just taking off, that that's all that matters. And, and so 
Twitter. <laughs> it, it, it like product market fit can be willed into existence. Like you can grind, um, but there, there's like a necessary set of conditions in the market that, that you need to have. Crypto is a good example of this. 2014, 15, 16, the market was completely dead. So Coinbase, like we could not move any metric. Like most, most venture-backed startups that start to raise enough venture capital, like they've kind of gotten to like quote product market fit. They, they have this idea that like, okay, if we put enough work in, we can kind of move this one North Star metric up, right? And, and like in SaaS, it's usually uh, ARR. Coinbase, we couldn't, we couldn't move a single metric. Then 2017 happened and, and it was like, we, we did nothing different. Like, and if anything, we stopped working on any new product features. It was just like, just keep the site up for an entire year, if not 18 months. And it was just the market like took over. And so uh, you could argue that like Coinbase's product was only okay. It wasn't like it was like kind of like uh, Apple level or, or kind of some of these other companies, but it was good team. Okay. Product in, in, in the right market. And, and so. Uh, I think, you know, OpenSea could be, be probably the same thing of like, there was just a bunch of stuff that OpenSea, it was, it was like a 10 person team when, when they started to take off in the last uh, cycle. And so I think like with AI being the kind of like current zeitgeist, like people have memory hold a whole bunch of different like parts of the last 10 years where there was a moment of like, this is AI's moment or th there's going to be a lot of revisionist history of like, oh, well, that wasn't really there. But like, I, I lived through it like, Chatbots, like we already had a whole chatbot era, right? Like there were a whole bunch of like hundreds of millions, billions of dollars invested. Like chatbots didn't go anywhere. It was like Slack came out of the gate and then everyone's just like, oh man, chatbots, that's the future of, of work. I actually do think this time it is different in the sense that like you, you look at, you know, GPT and all the tools that are starting to get built around it. Um, there's this guy, McKay Wrigley or Wright. Uh, he, he has an open source project where he basically just kind of put a skin on top of the API for GPT, right? So it's like, you can go to ChatGPT's website or you can actually just consume that via the API. And so he, he's built a more flexible, you know, configurable version. Um, and so he has this really cool thing where he basically narrates to his Siri um, and that gets piped in behind the scenes and, and, and you're able to kind of like build a, like a working website, right? So you can kind of imagine like, as that accelerates, we're going to be able to have these like really cool, like Webflow or, or, you know, Squarespace or whatever, or yeah, Shopify, all these, these tools where you still have to click around, like that's just going to be able to, you're going to be able to talk to the computer and have it work. But kind of like going back to this trend of, of like, where, where do you make your, your bets in a market like this? I don't know. Like, I think so, so there's, there's some conventional wisdom that like, if you're, if you're, in a market like AI, and like now you're excited about AI, you're, you're YC winter 2023, and like now is the time to build an AI company. It's like, mm, it was actually probably three years ago when it was contrarian, right? And we were in AI winter. There's another school of thought that is like, if you look at social networks, for example, the last one in, in the era of the kind of like first, you know, MySpace, Friendster, all that, it was Facebook. And that was the one. And so it's, it's, there's like, everyone always talks about first mover advantage, but there's actually in, in many ways, last mover advantage works. Like Apple was effectively the last mover in the, the, the opening era of like smartphones. And if you like think of like the trio and, and the Nokia stuff that existed before, and it's like, when you're the last mover, you can benefit from all the technology change. You can actually find the right product and you actually then change the market. I, I arguably Apple will be the same with VR. 
right? Like we've had a whole bunch of attempts at VR over the last seven years. You know, Facebook, Facebook is considered the like leader in AR or VR, and then Apple's going to release some headset. And then overnight, they're going to be like having leapfrogged it because they can benefit from all the mistakes that have been publicly made by Facebook and then actually use some internal skills that they have, right? Like they're the best in the world at like integrating silicon with like all the other display technology and, and batteries and stuff like that. And so I, I think it's um, thinking about the market and wh whether or not you, you need to be early to it or you can actually be that last mover. I don't think it's, it's, it's more art than science. And I think like you just, it's, it's good to be like a first principles thinker and, um, I think you also really benefit from if you can kind of tinker within that market, right? Like you can play around with it yourself rather than if you're some business person and you're having to find a technical person, like you're not going to be close enough to the metal to really understand it. And, and again, it, this is more for, for technology than anything else. But yeah. And similarly, like um, before Mark started Netscape, he thought he was too late uh, to the to the Internet. <laughs> so, you know, there, there are a lot of people yeah, who, who, who thought they were too late, but actually it was it was the right time. Oh, I, I, I thought like when I was joining Coinbase in 2014, I thought I was I was late to Bitcoin. I was like, damn, I missed I missed the big appreciation when it went from, you know, single sub dollar to single dollars to, you know, $30. And then I, you know, I, I think I bought my first Bitcoin at $75. And then I was an idiot and I sold it at 300 thinking I was George Soros. And it was like, wow, what an amazing return. Like, I, I'm, I'm so smart. And then I did the same thing, by the way, after after then watching it go up to like, you know, several thousand dollars, not not tens of thousands of dollars. I was like, OK, never sell cryptocurrency. again. Ethereum comes along. I don't buy it in the presale, I, I, but I bought a little bit of Ethereum uh, sub ten dollars. And then it gets up to like twenty dollars. Like, oh, this is never going to be bigger than that. So then you sell it at twenty dollars. And so I, I, at that point, like basically, then you just don't sell any cryptocurrency. Like it's just like that just becomes like it's like a one way you buy it and just like okay, this is a ten year bet or it's a zero. Like stop trying to be a day trader, and, and that's actually another point. And I know this is a little bit rambling, but I think Silicon Valley people, on average, like the the kind of like smartest people I know in Silicon Valley, they suck at liquidity management. They'll always tell you all these like terrible stories of like where they they kind of galaxy brain themselves. And, and for those listening at home, it's like basically people who are really good at like kind of the zero to one or, or identifying the new trend and the new technology. The default model in Silicon Valley is that takes seven to 10 years to actually come to fruition. And so you get this like compounding over that time period and the illiquidity, right? Because the company is not public, maybe you have a secondary, but like for the most part, it, it, it's, it's this kind of forced uh, illiquidity is actually really good for the types of people who are, who are good at figuring that out. Whereas as soon as you get into a market, you know, company goes public and now you have a, a, a public stock that can wiggle, you know, like a back and forth every day or, or correct by 80% in the course of two weeks, you're just not programmed to, to deal with that market because the, the participants in, in the stock market are, you know, way more sophisticated than you. Like they're just, they're the, like, that's Wall Street. And so, you your frame on like how to identify that kind of like uh, anomaly in in the world to make a bet early and, and it, uh, take an exponential trend gets hit with the reality of the market and, and the quote it's like the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent like you might say hey th this trend is still progressing exponentially and it's like well 
Jerome Powell raises interest rates, and now, now the market has decided that the, the future cash flows of this company aren't worth as much, even if the business fundamentally didn't change like uh, overnight in terms of you know whatever. And so, I think that is a um, another kind of like interesting component of cryptocurrencies is that because in in a lot of cases there's more liquidity earlier, and not in all cases. Like Coinbase was was you know private for almost ten years, and um, I think. Crypto is just like it gets distorted quite a bit because then there's a lot of liquidity happening before the technological progress. And I actually think that creates the worst part of the branding for the space is it naturally attracts grifters because then a grifter is like, wait a second, I can kind of do this thing, get it into some type of form that I can go sell and get liquidity and I don't have to do any work, right? Like that just doesn't, you can't have that happen um, with a traditional company and equity because... Uh, you know, outside of someone paying you some crazy amount like SoftBank and you get a big secondary out of it, like the ability for you to go public is, is a much higher bar. And, and so I think that's actually one of the biggest issues with the SPAC thing is you saw a whole bunch of these like kind of like moonshot companies. They went public um, during 2021 is like there was like that YC or, or Peter Thiel fellow, uh, Thiel fellow. Um, Lunar? No. Um there was that one guy who was like, basically, he's now a billionaire or whatever. And he bought that, you know, really expensive house. I think it, like someone said it was like used on the, the most recent episode or something in succession. And that that company shouldn't have been public. That, that, that's, and, and, and then, of course, it's like Brandon's like tech, like whatever. And it's like, well, like that's, it's like a SPAC that, that is a kind of a Wall Street game versus did, did you attract top tier venture capitalists who, who thought you were a real technologist and, and building something? I don't know. That, that felt like it was kind of all over the place. No, no. It's a good teaser for our request for startups uh, conversation that we'll do at the end. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. And it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for growing startups looking to hire marketers. Hiring is hard, and the time it takes for founders could be better leveraged elsewhere. Marketer Hire pre-vets top-notch marketers across a dozen roles, whether you need help with growth marketing, SEO, lifecycle content, or any other aspect of growth marketing strategy. It's free to use, and you only pay if you end up hiring someone. If you want to hire a great marketer the easy way, Marketer Hire is offering Moment of Zen listeners a $1,000 credit for first-time customers. Go to marketerhire.com slash MOZ and use code MOZ for your $1,000 credit. Well, we're on the topic of crypto. Let's spend just a couple minutes of um, make the NFT thing more concrete for people who don't quite understand why digital scarcity matters or why digital property rights matters. Um, and, you know, they just see, you know, monkey JPEG, like make it a bit more real for like, what is actually a breakthrough here and how will the world be different you know, because of it? I don't know if it's a breakthrough. I, I think it's just an interesting primitive that that is, it's very low level. It's very, very simple, but there has been a lot of interesting software effectively built to kind of like support this ecosystem. And I think that the best way to think about it is with, within Linux, uh, like that whole world, every new program you can kind of build on a Linux computer kind of becomes composable with other programs, right? It's like you can you can take the output from one program and then easily move it into another program here and you can kind of stitch it together. So 
to make it maybe a little less technical, if you've ever used uh, like Zapier or if this, then that, like this kind of like no code, low code ability to kind of tag like this service, I like, I want to take, you know, anything that happens on Twitter and put it into a Google, Google spreadsheet, right? Like it's kind of that stuff. That's like the Linux philosophy of, of like, or Unix philosophy of being able to kind of, each program does one thing and it, and it can kind of tag into each other. So to kind of tie that to NFTs, um, it, it's like a low level standard. Like if you're a technical person, it's like ERC721. There are a few other ones. Uh, it, it lives on Ethereum. And it basically is a kind of standard to say, okay, if, if you kind of code your, your smart contract, like in this standard, um, a whole bunch of other pieces of software are going to out of the box, just work with this. And so let, let's say we're, we're kind of doing just like the, the classic, you know, monkey JPEG is, is Bored Apes. It's so it's kind of, you, you have one of 10,000 um, photos of like a, you know, stylized uh, ape wearing clothing. And it's a couple of things out of this. One, you can actually, if, if you go look at the smart contract on Ethereum, you can see that there are only 10,000 uh, of these, these kind of JPEGs, right? And so what, what it is, is just kind of like a one through 10,000, like think of it as almost like a phone book. And if you look at, you know, 337, you can actually go see where, where the image is and, and you can kind of say, okay, this image only exists once and it's coming from this contract. And so we can all agree that this is a limited edition you know, one out of 10,000. We have plenty of precedent for this in the art world. Like artists will do like one out of a hundred uh, run. Um, obviously uh, the sneaker market, like uh, Nike manages the amount of Jordans that are available at any given time pretty closely. There's actually no transparency there, so they can add more to the market if they want to. But uh, generally, I think from a like a long-term vision, Nike wants to keep them scarce because it keep, keeps it valuable. So, that, that's like kind of like the core primitive is just you, you now have something on a blockchain that anyone can go look at and say, yep, they haven't added the 10,000 in first state. They really just only have 10,000. The other thing that you have that's been built, whether or not you think it's good, it's just like this, this exists, is a whole bunch of economic infrastructure that like if you launch an NFT contract, you, you get for free out of the box. So OpenSea, we mentioned before, that's like the eBay of the space. And anytime you add an NFT to the blockchain, it just like works with OpenSea. You don't have to go get an account with OpenSea and register. Like it just, it, if you want to go sell or put it up for auction on OpenSea, it'll just work out of the box. Now there's actually a whole bunch of other competitors to OpenSea because OpenSea got so big in the last cycle, the, the prices have already come way, way, way down in terms of like, I think OpenSea was taking a 5% cut of every sale. Now it's, now it's basically free. And so like there's a massive amount of, of consumer surplus in the sense that like the, the fees have gone gone to zero. And so now people are competing on on features and, and, and other things like that. So you you have a market dynamic of of innovation of now people are gonna have to have, figure out different business models because the fees effectively have gone to zero. That's a perk of things that are on blockchains is fees naturally trend to the the like actual market clearing price rather than any bit of rent extraction. Like contrast um it's a little bit of a side. On Uniswap, the fees are are like way lower, right? Because it's an on-chain exchange than Coinbase. And why is why is that? Coinbase uh, has to maintain these relationships, and we we talked about this with Nick Carter, with banks, and have all these licenses. And there's regulatory capture, and, and it requires time and money. And not anyone can just go do that off the street. And so Coinbase can charge 
2% or 1% or whatever they're charging today. Uh, whereas Uniswap can only maybe charge uh, a third or a sixth of that. And, and that's the result of when you're on chain, like you're actually leveling the, the playing field in terms of like anyone can go compete uh, and create a different, different exchange. So the same thing has happened with NFTs. And then there's all this other interesting stuff where you can actually take an NFT and, and you can, uh, you know, fractionalize it. So you can actually say, hey, like this expensive NFT, I, I can't afford that, but I want to potentially own a piece of it. Uh, someone can actually go create a group on chain. You can kind of um, think of it as like a, like a group bank account. And then you could actually go and buy one, one NFT. That was actually that Constitution DAO thing that they competed. Like, that's effectively what, what that was. And so... Like, I'm giving all these examples, and then you might just say, okay, well, why do you care about doing that for a photo of a monkey? Like, like that just seems like a complete waste of time. Um, and, like, you, you should be spending your time on, on more productive things such as civilization. But the, all that ec economic infrastructure works uh, for the format that is NFTs. So if you start changing what you're actually putting into this format, you, you, you have all this infrastructure. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's like saying like, okay, imagine if uh, images on the internet, PNG files or JPEG files uh, were only photos of cats. And like you built all of the tools, like you built Instagram, you built Photoshop, you built whatever. And the initial group was just photos cute cat photos. People would have said the same thing. They would have said, why are you spending all this time building all this software for cute cat photos? Like, we, th this is not serious. But obviously, like, photos on the internet, <laughs> that, that, that's like a, it's like a pretty big business. Same, same thing with, with video. And so I think the um, way to think about it is, it is a kind of just simple primitive where you can kind of guarantee scarcity that has a whole ecosystem of people building around it. And I think that there's fair criticism around like the initial use case seems so stupid. And, and there are kind of a lot of like grifting and, and, and all these like kind of projects, you know, the, the, especially the celebrity influencers that got involved. But, but the fundamental reality is it, it, it is actually something that is scarce in a decentralized way that anyone can build in a permissionless way uh, new, new tools and, and services on top. So to make it a little bit more concrete, Farcaster, the, the kind of username and identity of, of everyone on Farcaster is an NFT. It's not because like we want to put some like, you know, beautiful image on the chain and then sell you the image. It's just that now all of a sudden, um, I can actually have that NFT and all of the ecosystem of software that supports it, like the wallets all support NFTs, OpenSea supports NFTs. So really, really basic example, when you want to go sell a real domain name in the real world, you have to use some like sketchy service and, and like there's no kind of like single place of liquidity. You can't sell a domain name on eBay, but you can sell a Farcaster name. If, if that's something that you want to go do, right? Like maybe you have the name soccer and you decide that like, okay, this is actually valuable and someone wants to go buy it. Um, you can just go out of the box and, and use OpenSea. And so we didn't have to go build some marketplace for, for names. So you can imagine if Twitter's names were all NFTs, just hypothetical for a second, Elon could be making money off of selling unused Twitter handles, 
like out of the box. Doesn't have to build any of that infrastructure. He could just kind of get a cut of every one of those, those sales. And so I think NFTs are going to take longer than probably people think. But it, it's just like PNGs and JPEGs where, you know, we, we had those on the internet for a while, right? Like actually going back to Mark Andreessen, it's a, it's a pretty funny thing to go look up the history of the image tag, IMG uh, tag, Mark Andreessen, HTML. And he, he basically proposed in 1993 because browsers were only text-based. And he proposed adding, because he was working on Mosaic, which then became Netscape, he proposed adding the image tag uh, to HTML. And everyone, including Tim Berners-Lee, the person who invented the, the, you know, the, the World Wide Web, told him, no, this is like a terrible idea. Like we, we don't want, we don't want you know, people who would want to look at images. Like we want serious people who want to read uh, you know, text and academic stuff. I mean, obviously, like in retrospect, that was completely wrong. And, and you could argue that you know, what, what's, what's the value of Instagram? Right. Or like, like, what's the market cap of the entire like image format on the Internet? Like in terms of like what 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 has that done for for Internet use and, and utility? And so if, if you're saying 1993 is the start of that and it took till what, 2010 until Instagram, like so you're, you're talking about 20 years before like someone figured out the native format to like turn the image into a valuable company that, you know, has billions of hours per year spent like of people just like kind of looking at images. So so I think like it's intellectually dishonest for the the like haters of NFTs to be like, well, you know, oh, the internet had immediate like, utility. It's like, uh, okay, it, it's a file format and and so it can it can take time. And the original people who were running the internet didn't want to have it. And so it had to have like someone be willing to be contrarian and then actually just go stick it in Netscape and, and see if the, the market wanted to to kind of take off on that. Walk me through this analogy, you know, the cat photos is to photos on the internet as to monkey JPEGs is to, uh, I guess you'll say, you know, NFTs, but like, just make it more concrete because the, the cat photos to photos on the internet, we know what photos on the internet looks like. We don't know what the main use case is. I and mean, you gave a couple, but one of them was like the Twitter, you know, usernames, like, what do you expect to be the majority like use cases um, for these applications once they're proliferated? So I think we talked about this with Nick Carter, but like I'm not bullish on taking real world stuff and then just throwing it on chain. Like at some point someone might do that and like they do the enterprise sales to figure out how to like the titles department in some county in the US can instead of being on paper, like can switch over to a blockchain. I think that's like marginal improvement in efficiency. Like would it would it be? Yeah, like just getting things on a kind of like neutral platform and like mortgage-backed securities. Actually, there's a company, Mike Cagney, who got canceled from SoFi. Uh, he went and started a new company. I think it's called uh, Figure, and they actually have a like uh, mortgage blockchain. It's an enterprise blockchain. You can't just like go sign up and use it. Like you, they have to kind of onboard you into it. But they, they they have the enterprise sales skills of being able to convince other people in the mortgage industry to be like, hey, this is more efficient to use this kind of like shared neutral database. Basically. But I'm not generally. Uh, I, I fall very much into Chris Dixon's like point of view of like just the the net new behavior thing is always going to be the thing to like pay attention to rather than like do the existing yeah the skeuomorphic do the existing thing better um and that's also teal like 10x versus 10 percent right like if you're if you're competing with something that doesn't exist by definition it's it's kind of 10x right like it, it, it creates the category whereas um something that's just like marginally better is just it's a slog 
Um, so I think where I am more excited is just like take, take, take a couple of threads. People spend more time online, right? So today we do it with a piece of glass that we hold in our hand. 10 years ago, you know, you could only do that on a computer. Now you can kind of do it anywhere you want. Um, you know, the favorite critique of Gen Z or the younger generation is like they spend too much time on their phones or, you know, I would be curious on screen time per generation. Is, is that an increasing trend, flatlining trend, decreasing? Like my, my sense is that people are spending more time on devices, right? Internet connected devices. And then so the, the second thing is um, in an internet connected device world, if that's where you're spending most of your time, Humans are, are status-seeking monkeys. This is like the Eugene Way status as a service. Um, how do you create status on, on, on any uh, kind of internet-based thing, right? Because that's where you're spending time. You're naturally going to, humans are going to like look for how, how do you create status. So up until recently, there were a whole bunch of um, people, a, a lot of the anti-crypto people um, that thought a blue check on Twitter was status. Why was it status? Because there was an opaque way to go get it, and, and it was arbitrary. But a lot of the right people had the, the blue check, so it made them feel good, right? Because the, the unwashed masses could, could not get access to it, right? Elon comes in and says, hey, we're going to just you know, get rid of these legacy checks, uh, and you, you can get a check if you just pay me eight bucks a month. So I think that's probably a good decision for Twitter long run, like just like move to a subscriber model. But you can't argue that it took the status of a blue check and it, it just basically it, uh, you know, wiped it out because now, now it's accessible. So what, what are people looking for from a status standpoint? I, I don't think this has been successful uh, yet because uh, I think he's antagonized a lot of the people, the, the journalist class, that, that a lot of them had blue checks. Basically, the easiest way to get a blue check before was like, go work for the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. And like now you automatically get a blue check, even if you're a, you know, a first year reporter, like, and you could be a CEO of some company over here and, and Twitter hasn't deemed you normally. I think what may change though, is the, the company modifier, you know, assuming the New York Times and, and NPR and PBS and all these people eventually come back to Twitter, which I think they will, the distribution on Twitter is, is too intoxicating. Uh, the, the company modifier actually is, is now uh, the status thing. Because it kind of always was, right? It's like working at the New York Times, that's a lot of status. That's like, I am at the top of the, the journalistic profession. If you're in banking, working at Goldman Sachs, if you're in consulting, working at McKinsey. And so I actually think that um, will become something over time. And may maybe it won't happen on Twitter for a while just because Elon is really like pissed off all the, the, the left. But I think... That is actually even more elite than blue check is like show the institution that you work for, right? Credentialism. So, but, but that goes back to is now that's a status that is controlled by another entity, the New York Times, or they're not even using it, but like whatever, whatever organization like Google or, or Coinbase can actually go decide what people on Twitter get that status. Okay. So you as a user or like an individual, you're spending all this time on, on these digital platforms. Well, there's one type of status that can be conferred on you by, by the institution that you're associated with. But where, where is my sovereign status? Like where is the status that I can get, uh, purchase, earn, whatever, whatever it is 
but I actually now, you can't take it away from me. And that is actually where I think NFTs will play into that. And, and the format can change quite a bit, but the idea that you could prove that institution X gave you some baseline credential, the classic example is I graduated from this fancy school and I want you to know that because that's actually economically and status valuable to me. Well, I, I, could, I could lie about that or, or whatever versus the ability to just actually see it and just be like, oh, that's actually, you do have a degree from you know, Harvard and, and that, that can be verified in a kind of programmatic way that's that's an NFT, right? Like you don't have to go get some special integration with like Harvard's uh, graduate database. It's just like, nope, Harvard's address on chain has issued some type of credential to this other person. And, and do you need a blockchain for that? No. So that's like, there's a reasonable group of people that could be like, oh, you could use uh, verified credentials and, and DIDs, and so, you know, whatever uh, technical spec. But but my, my sense is like, the world is going to move to this this version of decentralized status where you can verify who who gave the status to whom and 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 that i think is is a trend um that that will happen and people will be able to build new versions of of professional social networks like linkedin um you could imagine there are benefits that accrue to people in terms of their ability to access new services so i think like again you have to just have an open mind to this. Like the critics can always be like, this is stupid. But remember the people thought it was stupid to add the image tag to the internet. So Shopify actually, Toby is on the board of the CEO is on the board of Coinbase. So he, I think he has an open mind to, to crypto and he's kind of trying to see wh wh where's the future of commerce. Going. They actually launched a project, which I think a friend of the pod, Alex Danko was involved with where it's, it's, it's token gated commerce. Probably not a huge market today, but the, the interesting thing would be, okay, well, what if Taylor Swift's fan club now has, uh, you know, some type of NFT, right? Like something that's provably scarce that is conferred from Taylor Swift's organization. Now there's a whole class of Shopify stores that could say, hey, if you're a Taylor, Taylor Swift fan club member, like you get special access over here or whatever. And, and there are, there are, um, analogs to this in the sense that like you, you know, you join AAA, the insurance company that like helps you if your car breaks down, there are all these like discounts that you get if you're a AAA member, like it, you go to a hotel or you're wherever, like you have your AAA card, you, you can do that. That, that can happen if you, if you have something that's provable on chain that you know is scarce, that is issued from an organization that can just, again, programmatically happen. Um, and so I just think that it just becomes a primitive for people to build these types of experiences. and I, I don't know where it goes other than the fact that if you spend more time online, you you want a natively kind of like online uh, kind of programmatic way of accessing this kind of stuff. And NFTs can support that. So I, I think if you just extrapolate where we go over the next five or 10 years, we spend more time online. People are going to need ways of conferring status and or credentials. Um, and I think NFTs solve for that. In addition to a whole bunch of other use cases, like whereas if I'm an artist, and I actually just um, did this recently, so I, I was using Midjourney, uh, the AI tool, and I just made some art that was like themed related to Farcaster. Like Farcaster actually comes from a science fiction book called Hyperion. Um, 
kind of was just playing around with it and being like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make an NFT. I've never actually authored an NFT. And so I, I put it up on one of these NFT authoring tools. Um, and I basically made it so that you could mint an unlimited number of them. And, and I was going to have it open for a couple of weeks. And I charged, the only fee I charged was a dollar. So outside of you know paying some uh, amount of money to the blockchain, like you, you could take that dollar and, and you, know, you, you gave it to the, the contract for the NFT. And then I actually gave the proceeds to like this kind of like nonprofit group of people building Farcaster related tools, like open source tools. So it's kind of like a like a non a donation thing. But was was kind of neat is like wasn't expensive and it was kind of more like a collectible thing that like commemorated whatever. And I had like two thousand people mint it. Like I didn't I wasn't shilling it, being like, oh, this is a, like a roadmap and like you're gonna you know, get some benefit and you're going to be able to sell it for the future. It was just like, you know, I made like a little kind of collectible commemorative thing and I put it on the internet and charged a dollar that was going to proceed. And and if you just think about it, there's plenty of that stuff. It's like you go to some event and they give you a coffee mug that you get to take home or like you get like a hoodie or like what whatever whatever thing that you, you know, you do your your 5K road race and they give you a t-shirt. It's like people people like that stuff. Like it, you you... You can deride it and say it's not valuable, but like people, people like knickknacks and little collectibles and things like that. And and so in, in this case, like if I made that just a free image and you could download it on your computer, no one cares. But if there's like a, I had to click a button and I minted it and, and I actually, there is a little bit of scarcity here and that it's like, I now have a collectible thing that is in my wallet that if I, you know, have an app, I can show you the things that I've collected. People, people like it. And so people can deride that. But like the reality is like people like collecting things. And, and so I think that there's like a whole category of, of just these, these types of use cases. That work. So I, I, I'm going to predict, by the way, like we have, we have our, uh, our, our resident haters of, of like anything that I say on this stuff is like, okay, like, cool. Like you can criticize it now, but you, you literally are going to sound the same like uh, Tim Berners-Lee when he said we shouldn't add the image tag to the internet. It's like, on a 20 year time horizon, you, you may be wrong. Yeah. To, to the extent that people are concerned about sort of increased centralized power with, with AI and other things, you know, capricious corporations or, or governments, crypto technologies like NFTs will, will, will be more and more, um, important And NFTs is just one of kind of many, um, you know, sort of types of technologies that people are working on to help give people sovereignty in, in different ways. And then similarly, um, or, or then separately, in terms of um, like if you compare like Substack to Mirror as, uh, as an example, um, like on Substack, I could subscribe to a writer and I pay eight bucks or whatever it is and I get their writing. But on Mirror, um, which is sort of the Web3 version of it, I can not only subscribe, I can, I can also invest and and get like like NFTs, I believe enable like different kinds of like dynamic pricing or or different kinds of like economic upside that is also um, integrated um, alongside that just enables kind of new new kinds of interactions where now creators can kind of tier pricing more effectively for for and then better monetize for for whales and and more casual users, but then also um, you know include their their audience in their economic upside with just which is just more likely to increase fandom. And that's why you see a lot of these NFT accounts, like they've like 
massive followings and like massive rabid communities because when your community has upside in in what you're building they're 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 just more excited about it, more engaged yeah i think that the pushback on that um is one there are securities laws in the us and they're on it's still unclear as it relates to like nfts and, and crypto and so i think that there's a bit of a chilling effect and i think we're going to get to some amount of clarity it's never going to be perfect but like Coinbase actually getting sued by the SEC, like in them going to court, is going to be good for the industry. I do actually think we'll have some amount of like legislative action in the US rather than just kind of this like bureaucratic, uh, like let's apply. And, and I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but just for people at home who don't know, we have like a 1930s era law that created the SEC with a Supreme Court case from the 1940s about orange groves in Florida called Howie, that is how securities law works in the United States. We have not updated it, right? And actually, I've been, I was using GPT-4 for this because um, I now have the plugin so I can have it browse the web for me. And uh, what, what's interesting is there's a whole group or you know collection of laws that were passed in the 1990s that most people don't think about, like it's kind of wonky to think about, but like the Telecommunications Act, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, uh, you know, you got Section 230, Communications Decency Act, like child child protection stuff that actually got overturned by the Supreme Court. And, and, you know, like, how do you deal with porn? How do you deal with encryption? Encryption originally was regulated like a munition. The first version of Netscape that was available outside the US had like 48-bit encryption because the NSA needed the ability to be able to crack it. And so, so there was a ton of legislative, not regulatory, but real legislative action, which then is, you know, that's upstream of how regulators approach things. And it effectively gave the internet like a free pass to just develop. And, you know, you can find some extreme people would be like, oh, if we had just gotten better regulation up front, like we wouldn't have had, you know, all the disinformation and Trump would have never got elected or whatever. But the, re the reality is like, I don't think you can look someone in the face like with a serious argument and say that the internet has not been good from an economic standpoint for the United States. Like it's just like the, the, the regulatory framework that was put in place as a result of legislative action, like actual like votes in Congress was, was a net possible. Like that, uh, you know, you don't have the counterfactual, but my argument is that crypto would be the equivalent. Let's just take crypto and AI because this is like the favorite you know, everyone loves on the AI side because AI is hot now to just like dump on crypto, right? Um, imagine if uh, whatever tool, the the one we mentioned before, the chatbot UI open source thing, or there's this one now called AutoGPT, which like basically will do your own task list for you. Like it's kind of like it, it's really becoming an AI assistant. These are open source projects. Imagine if all of a sudden it would be like, oh, no, nope, you're liable. Uh, someone did something really bad with your open source software on this. You're, you're not going to jail. That's effectively what, what the regulatory environment is for crypto and has been because we haven't gone and, and put some reasonable updates to the securities laws or defining like what is and what isn't. And like, here's how you kind of go about doing things. And so crypto's kind of lived in this like weird gray area where the government has only gotten more aggressive over time. Whereas AI is, is basically benefiting from this internet regulation and we can say that maybe some of the safety stuff and the alignment stuff is going to come down from a regulatory standpoint. But I think 
because there is no equivalent of the the securities laws from from the 30s that that give up like really aggressive you know kind of like uh law enforcement type action or, or you know criminal criminal penalties uh the thing is being able to evolve at the pace of, of the technology right and you're going to potentially see next year with with the election tons of disinformation i don't even really believe in that word but but like they're going to be robocalls that sound like different candidates and 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 people are going to be getting you know gpt powered text messages and the number of articles that will be there and so you're going to have all these like quote abuses of the technology deep fakes uh but the reality is it's like it, it, we're going to get through it and 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 as a result like we're not going to hamper the development of ai whereas i think crypto like it just is it has been on the wrong side of the regulatory framework and I always bring up this example where Uber and Airbnb violated laws and existing laws in places, but they didn't violate federal laws. So, so there was no DOJ, FBI, like, like real penalties coming down. Um, whereas, you know, I think they got in a public fight with New York and Austin. And then Uber would just be like, okay, we're going to just be outside of your jurisdiction. Like you, like the, the local law enforcement in Austin can't go to San Francisco and arrest the CEO of Uber. Like this doesn't work like that. And so I think um, going back to that kind of like early internet framework, legislative action is actually critically important uh, for kind of allowing new technologies to grow without, without kind of stifling them. And we're at a place with Congress now where it's just like bipartisan stuff rarely happens. I was actually really surprised that the CHIPS Act did happen like the, the semiconductor stuff. But um, I, I just think that 90s were a different era when I think the two parties would, would kind of say, hey, new technology, the internet, like we're both in line with like, this could actually be really beneficial from an economic standpoint, rather than a, how can I control this? Or like, you know, use it as kind of whatever self-serving thing. And, and I think I don't know. I, I'm not that optimistic in the near term, but maybe if you have a, a new administration in 2024, you and, and Congress, maybe maybe you do get some uh, laws in place, both for for crypto and AI. And I think it's it's the goal is to actually just put some some wide guardrails, but still put some guardrails, and that actually creates clarity in the market of like, okay, don't don't go past these points, but everything else can actually just uh, you know develop as necessary. Yeah, it's just to push on the disinformation thing for a second. It's interesting because in AI, there's the AI ethics community and AI safety community. And sometimes people conflate them and think that they're talking about the same things, but they're actually talking about very different things. The AI ethics community is worried about, um, you know, increased inequality, um, disparities among groups of people, just kind of typical um, DEI concerns, whereas the AI safety community is worried about, you know, AGI killing us all or you know, whatever it is. And, and there, you know, those are very different concerns. And similarly, when people have been talking about disinformation for the past five years, usually they're talking about disinformation that hurts the Democrat party. <laughs> um, they're, you know, they're, they're really talking about different disinformation that helps, you know, the, the, the Democratic party. They're, they're not concerned about, about that. Like it's usually a political cudgel. Um, even if in fact it is disinformation or incorrect information, it's usually politically like, you know, servicing one side. Wait, so so let's touch those two points. So the first is, if you know the meme where it's like the two 
bodybuilders like grabbing each other like by the hand, you know, the handshake and they're they're flexing. AI safety and AI ethics are, are actually they're aligned because they just and not alignment they're they, they just want to control them, right? Like they want to throw regulatory agency that basically approves things. And if it's not in either of those camps, then you you can't, right? Like control the GPUs, slow slow the thing down. I, I view it as actually they they want to put the equivalent of what they did with nuclear energy in, in the US with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the NRC, which for those who don't know, uh, post Three Mile Island in the 70s, um, they added a, a, an independent federal agency, which I, I could go on a whole brand on, on independent federal agencies that are created by Congress that are in theory not sub, uh, you know subject to executive branch. Um, I'm not a lawyer, but like I, I would love to understand how that fits within Article Two of like the president is in charge of the executive branch. Put that to the side. Uh, so I think that, that that's what they'd want to create, and and it would kind of be like the FTC with Lena Khan or something, and you'd have whatever group of um, right think people who would get to decide how a, AI works. On the disinformation side, um, it's just a classic Russell contract. Right. So as long as, and, and I think we've mentioned these on the, the uh, show before, but like I report you docs, right? It's just like, I, I do the right thing. It could be the exact same thing. And it just depends on who's doing it. Um, but, but here's a good example. This, this recent leak from the, the Pentagon, right? We, we just spent four years in the previous administration where these leaks, these were, these were true American heroes you know, making sure that the the Trump administration was not going to overstep and we were going to leak the information to the New York Times. They're going to protect the, the sources. And, you know, like that, that that's the way it worked. Who did the work to find the uh, to find this leaker for the, the Pentagon? But like we're, now we have all this information about how the U.S. is viewing foreign policy or whatever. Like you're, you're talking about the, the same organization that was that went to the Supreme Court for the Pentagon Papers in, in Vietnam, right? Like they they did not want to give up any sources because they they really believed in the idea that like getting the information from the government and then actually exposing it is is a good thing, which I generally agree with. Like I actually think leaked information to the press from the government, like it, it's a good check on the government. The New York Times found the guy from the military who leaked this, and then they like they were showing online. It's like oh we. We did this sleuthing with the granite and like we were able to figure it out. And now, and now they're now they arrest him. So it's like, how, how like how how can you be the same organization? It's like, oh, there's a different, different um president in the office, and and that president aligns with the the political ideology of the of the press. And so I think the disinformation thing, another good example. If you just ask the average like educated person on the street, uh doesn't even have to be educated. But actually, I think that there's probably a difference between the, the more educated person and maybe less educated person. Did Russia create massive amounts of disinformation in the 2016 campaign? Like, what, what is the actual factual assessment here? And, and to go even to what the government has come out and said, the average person is probably going to tell you that, yeah, that, that, that definitely contributed to the campaign. When the reality is, if you look at the people who actually got put in prison or like, you know, under investigation for the disinformation, it was the, the Steele dossier and, and it was people associated with the Hillary Clinton campaign of basically saying that Trump 
Trump was doing all this this stuff. Like there, there's no material disinformation. Like it, it, it's it's like the the Ferguson report, right? That everyone always talks about. You know, all the stuff that happened in Ferguson, right? 2014, Obama, DOJ, Eric Holder, they did an investigation. There is a one sentence end of this long federal report on what happened at Ferguson. And it, it just says there, there is no, there is no like hate crime or, and or thing we would be able to pursue, period. But like you would ask, the, it's, they're just going to have this whole narrative. And, and, and so I, I think like disinformation is just this, uh, it's, it's just a narrative of like, okay, like people are saying things I don't like. I'm now going to label it disinformation. And then as we've seen with the stuff with Twitter, it's just like, we're going to use different apparatus to try to, to stifle that, right? Is, is the New York Post article that was about the Hunter Biden laptop, was that disinformation? At one point it was. And then when it kind of came out that it was rooted in some amount of fact, I actually don't even know how much. How much. Then there was kind of a lockstep change of like, well, it wouldn't have actually mattered in the election. Anyways. And, and so it's like, I, I think... It, this is not to say it's like the left only does it. I, I think the the right, given the if they're in a position of power, they're going to do the exact same thing. So so it is not a left versus right thing, but it's like if if you are believing the frame of disinformation, which I think generally is coming from mainstream media, which I think generally has more of a left leaning bias, um, the only one who's getting disinformation is you thinking that the disinformation is actually an issue, and I, and I think like. Um, the other thing is it, it's, you know, kind of these like very online people, coastal elites um, who, who just like think that the average American is just like this really dumb, um, easily influenced person because like, you know, they watch Tucker Carlson on Fox News or whatever. And I think like they just don't spend much time talking to average people because I actually think average people are a lot smarter than they get credit for. And I think that the average person kind of is like, yeah, I, I think this is all kind of BS, like from both sides. And I think Washington, that's, that's why Congress's approval is extremely low. Like, you know, I think it's like single digit approval rating, or maybe it's like, you know, 10, 10 15%. And so, so the, the idea that like, you know, the kind of like average person in the middle of the country just like isn't sophisticated enough to consume information on the internet. Are there cases of that? Sure. But I, I think that there's also cases on and on, on both sides of the political spectrum. And, and maybe maybe it is even a little higher on the right. So so like, yeah, you, you score a little point. But like to think that the the average person is just like is completely incapable of like consuming information on the Internet, like you might as well just like, OK, let's go all the way back to the printing press and just ban books. Like it's like, sorry, like information is dangerous because people aren't smart enough. And, and, I, and I think there's there's a historical record of like that. That's what people People are worried. And, and then here, here's my favorite one. So, so why, um, you know, why are repressive regimes, like why do they want to control information, right? Like why do you have the Great Firewall? It's, it's because if anything, like the information, when you actually have free access to the information, it's, it's the single best check on, on the state, right? Because you can't hide things, right? Like you do have people leaking the, the Pentagon stuff and, and the foreign policy stuff. And so, I don't know, I, I just completely reject the disinformation frame. And I think people who, who really buy into it would benefit from spending more time from the average. 
Well, what's interesting about that is to your point earlier, like with AI and deep fakes, et cetera, we're about to have real disinformation, like real disinformation has never been tried. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it'll be interesting to see how, uh, how it's, we've been, we've been like the boy who cried wolf on disinformation when we're actually about to have like, you know, much more uh, advanced technologies for people who are eager to make something. So there's like an XKCD, like nerdy comic that, that shows just like um, instances of like photos where it's like with Bigfoot. And then like once Photoshop came out, it, they just they just basically they spike and then it goes to zero because at a certain point, like no one's going to believe like in a world where you can just kind of create whatever image. And then now now we have Midjourney and all this generative AI. So it's like humans adapt and they basically are going to get to a point where no one's going to believe any photo any video, any audio recording, right? Like the Access Hollywood tape basically is, is going to be that that never will happen again once this stuff is good enough. And we will come up with new ways to determine the veracity and, and, and kind of like authenticity of, of whether or not some evidence is, is real. And, and so if anything, I think like it will increase the ability for people in power. And it doesn't have to be, you know, right or left. It, it just... People in power are going to be able to get away with a lot more things because they're going to have plausible deniability. Like you're not going to be able to catch someone. And, and so now where I think you're going to get the kind of thing will be like, okay, this is a, this is a you know, tape or recording from an FBI operation. And now you're going to get the conspiracy theorists to say like, well, did this actually even happen? Because you can actually go create it, right? Like the, the like moon landing equivalent, right? You know, conspiracy thing. So I, I think it's just going to be a you know a brave new world in that regard. But like I I think like video and um, you know picture based evidence and audio based evidence is you just won't be able to trust anything. Yeah, and and people are going to kind of further separate or isolate into their own realities or, or versions of of what's happening, which segues into do you, you know with social media we've done this grand experiment of connecting the world, and it turns out. A lot of people hate each other <laughs> and are retreating into uh, into more you know tribal ways of communicating. Whether it's you know more fragmented ways of communicating, whether it's group chat or or these kind of micro social networks. I'm, I'm curious if you, if you see that as the as the future. You're obviously building you know what's starting out as a crypto Twitter, um, but you know with you know plans to expand well, well beyond that and kind of innovate on the medium. But do you see the future of social media as we're going to have like a QAnon Twitter, a Blue Anon Twitter, uh, all these kind of micro um, social networks, how do you see it playing out as you're building it? My sense is that we do increase fragmentation, but I, I do think like, I think Twitter's network effect is pretty Lindy, um, and is, is not going away anytime soon, despite, you know, the Elon bad meme, um, Twitter, I, I, I say this a lot is Twitter is, is an arena and it's people reason people show up for Twitter. There's, there's kind of like the 95% of people who are kind of showing up because that's where the news and, and kind of stuff that's happening is and then the five percent of people who are really participating in like a social network they're actually looking for blood sport like they they want the the drama that that's that's entertainment for them participatory entertainment i think uh look i think that that now the technologies are going to make it so that you know people are innovating on the decentralized layer of things and there's a variety of different approaches and they're going to make it so that you can opt into using a system that you have a lot more configurability to with pretty close to the same user experience as, as a centralized network like Twitter or Instagram. So I think it'll take time for those things to scale. And 
in, in that case, I just think you just, you're just, just like you have multiple identities. And, and the easiest way to think about this is if you just go through your, your iMessage, how many different chats do you have? Like you have your chat with your family, you have your chat with your, you know, kind of your spouse, you have your chat with your, your college friends, you have your chat with like the local parents from your school. And like you, you change your, your identity on a very frequent basis within one app. Twitter is a little different, like in the sense that right now it's kind of like you have this just omni feed and, and you kind of have your Twitter, Twitter identity. But you can imagine a world where if that infrastructure is easy to kind of boot up and, and configure what what you act like on on your kind of like chat app, which is you actually have a lot of different types of identities uh, you're going to get in, in some of these more public social networks. And I think some of the cryptographic stuff that's, that's happening under the hood, whether it's you know, zero knowledge proofs or some of the stuff that's coming down the pipe will potentially allow you to be in different levels of like publicness, right? So it's like you could be pseudonymous or anonymous. And so I think we're going to just have those, those types of systems. But I think that the, the polarization thing is another thing where I think that's a, this is like an online thing where it's like you, it feels that way because you, you never had to deal with people of the other political persuasion before. Like that, that interaction was so infrequent. And the speed of information was at more of a kind of daily cadence, right? You'd get the newspaper once a day or you'd watch the nightly news, which constrained number of stations. There were kind of like equal time laws. And so you, you kind of got like the middle uh, opinion rather than the extremes. Cable news, I think, kind of started to, to pull it away. But I think the, the reality is like the, if, if you spend most of your time interacting with people in the real world, like it's a way harder to just be super disagreeable. Like it's just, People don't have the courage to be as disagreeable as they do behind the kind of like safety of a keyboard. And I think that the, the second component is like, so you, you could be this like vitriolic person online and you're just like constantly dunking and fighting with people. But that same person, if you, if you go to like the coffee shop, it's not like they, you know, like, let's say, you know, I'm kind of this right wing person online and I go to the coffee shop and, and someone just looks like they're, they're really liberal. I, I, don't, I don't do the same quote dunk tweet to like with them when I'm ordering my coffee. Like I just order my coffee and I'm like a reasonably polite person in the real world. And so that's that's the disconnect is like, I, I think, again, it goes to this like very online people narrative. Of like, oh, the polarization is, is at an extreme all time high. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's on Twitter it is. And, and on cable news that's selling you infotainment of like I, the polarization is really good for you to like want to watch that. But I think it, like you just go to the in the real world, like when you go to pick up your kid at school, is the polarization really high? And maybe maybe you're like Tyler Cowen, you know, averages over. We've sorted everyone out into these different groups. And so you only send your kid to a school where everyone has the same political beliefs as you. Maybe that's true. But I, but I think just generally people are um, I think it just takes a way higher threshold to be disagreeable and, and kind of like politically extreme in the real world relative to when you can do it from the safety of your keyboard or your phone. Yeah, I, I certainly agree that people aren't fighting in person um, or being, you know, um, sort of vitriolic nearly to the same extent that happens online. Um, but to your, to your other point, um, they're also not befriending each other or marrying each other or living with each other. There, there seems to be a strong uh, polarization on just um, in terms of like, you know, who's in their tribe where it used to be more more mixed um, Charles Murray's coming apart is, is really good on this. And it, it's, it's basically in some ways it feels like it's a synonym for class, 
basically like um, political, you know, we don't like thinking of ourselves as having class in, in the US. We think we think we're a classless society, but um, you know, one's political beliefs actually serve as a class signifier um, because if one has the wrong belief, they're like beyond the pale, they're not in the right sort of, um, you know, right try and, and on both sides. Yeah, and I think that like your your credentials create class in, in modern American society, right? Like people people don't care as much about the family that you come from and like that that level, whereas like what school you went to, right? Or what what job you have. And like the professional managerial class, I think, is is a bulk of the kind of like what you'd call elites versus not. Um I that that I, I don't have a good answer to and, and I do think is is a societal problem is is the kind of like the sorting where it's like okay i'm only going to be in areas with other people of the same beliefs uh that trend changes what i said before of like okay well then if you never have to interact with a person with political beliefs that's different from you that probably increases the online like polarization in terms of like well when i do run into these people they're so despicable to me because i never actually have to to deal with them right i think the easiest way to actually start building empathy and like actually having a more balanced political perspective is like when you when you have to on a regular basis interact with someone who has a different belief set, right? Like in person, um, it, it's like by definition, if, if you have to have repeated interactions with that person, you're 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 gonna you're gonna I think tack a little bit towards their direction just because you're gonna have built a human connection with them, even if you don't believe all the same things that they do. It's just you you you, you can say, oh, well, I know this person and they're not that. Right. Like I, I can still have a joke, like maybe we don't make political jokes, but like I can still have a joke with that person and, and a laugh. And so, yeah, I, I, I think, look, it, it goes back to this idea of like you have a bunch of men in society who I don't think have great economic prospects. Uh, I think you have a bunch of women who are who are highly competent, like, you know, have achieved a lot. They don't feel like they're finding men that meet their level. Uh, you have people kind of splitting from a, a political persuasion of like, okay, the people who move to the coastal cities over time get more liberal. And then the people who are kind of staying maybe in the middle of the country, you know, have fewer economic opportunities and they tend to be more conservative. Yeah, I, I think that that's a long-term trend that's probably not great. And so I, I do think, I don't know, I, I don't have a good answer to solve for it. Maybe we should try to find someone on a podcast uh, that would. But I, but I do think, um, I do think as a policy standpoint, like the two, the two things that if, if I was in charge, one, I think like fentanyl and like meth, like that is like, should be the single biggest issue, I think from a national policy, like it's just, it, it, it kills more people under the age of 60 than anything else at this point, uh, you know, killed more people in COVID died from fentanyl overdose than, than COVID, uh, like we didn't take the same extreme levels of, of trying to protect the population uh, from fentanyl that we did, you know, putting, putting masks that dubious efficacy and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think the second issue is, is economic opportunity distributed more broadly in the country, because I think that, you know, like increasing economic opportunity in, in only in certain areas. And then by the way, not building any housing there, like it just, it furthers the disparities. And, and I think, Figuring out how to like drive drive economic opportunity in, across the country, uh, and whether that's you know change regulations or or set new incentives, I, I think those are the two 
that I would be focused on and I would just get out of as many foreign entanglements um, to, to, to kind of quote Washington as possible, right? Like we should, we should just not be caring. Like, you know, Macron this week, you know, Antonio, if you had been here, we could have been arguing about this. It's like, you know, he gave this speech, he went and, you know, spent time with the CCP in China. And then now he he's saying like, we, we should not be dependent on the U.S. It's like, right. Like we're, we're this, uh, to, to quote our friend, Mike Solana, the soup kitchen is closed. Like, uh, you know, great, great post-war Marshall plan rebuilt, save, saved you in World War II, rebuilt all of your economies, provided a security blanket against the USSR so the tanks didn't roll into Berlin and Paris. Why don't you, why don't you take care of the, your own issues? And, and by the way, like your 50% of your gas is coming from our energy. So like go, go, uh, go outsource your energy policy to a 16 year old girl from Sweden. Like I, I just, I have no, no patience for like, we're doing all this stuff at the expense of people in the U.S., right? Like we're, we're spending money in Ukraine and all this other kind of stuff when, when the reality is like there are domestic issues that we should be focused on and let, let the Europeans be sovereign and, and show, show how uh, competent they are. Like, a, just, but I'm not in charge. So. Yeah. Well, um, to your first point, how, how would you crack down on the fence? Like what, what is the sort of point of leverage that you, one could have to change things? So I don't know if we talked about fentanyl on the pod before. Um, so really, really good book from um, Sam Kionis. He wrote this book, Dreamland. I think it was 2014. And it actually kind of re-lit uh, a fire under the Sackler family. I think they had kind of avoided the, the, the brunt of the opiate. They had, had some settlements. And the Sackler family runs Purdue Pharma or ran Purdue Pharma, which was Oxycontin, like the, the opioid epic. And that book really, really highlighted like th this hasn't gone away and it's still bad. And there's this new thing, black tar heroin, that is like kind of in the symbiotic. I don't know if that, that, that has a positive connotation. It's just a vicious cycle of opioids and, and black tar heroin and, and it's killing all these people. So that book, I think, is, is really important um, just, just to get a framework for, for how we got here. And uh, he then wrote a new book. I always get it wrong. Last of Us is the TV show. I think it's the, the rest of us. Or it, just just look up San Quiones, Q-U-I-O-N-E-S. And he, he wrote a book that's updated now where he's like, okay, opioids have kind of fallen off because they've, they've really cracked down on it. And even heroin is on the outs in, in such a short period of time since I wrote the last book. And everything has been replaced by fentanyl. And for those that don't know what fentanyl is, it's basically, it's a super, super potent opioid. It's like 100x the potency of heroin. And it's synthetic. So you actually, like if you, if you um, go to the hospital and, and you need some type of uh, like opioid uh, anesthesia or, or kind of part of the procedure, they're probably giving you fentanyl because it's, it's extremely precise. It's very, very powerful. Anesthesiologist is um, administering it. But what, what happened was is that Chinese chemical companies started actually making fentanyl and then shipping it uh, directly to people because it's, it's 100x. So if you think of it, you have to have this big batch of heroin reduced by, you know, the 100x, like that, that's a little bit of stuff to, to get the same effect. And the way it works is you take the fentanyl and you mix it with like baking soda or whatever, like cut it. And, and so now you can effectively sell people heroin, but 
but having got a very concentrated version. And so that was happening. Uh, and then the Trump administration actually really, really cracked down on um, and, and forced the Chinese to kind of stop sending fentanyl directly. And so what happened was, is the market shifted where the, the Chinese companies don't send fentanyl anymore. They send precursor chemicals because this is just all chemistry, right? It's like if you've ever watched the show Breaking Bad, they send those to Mexico. There are chemical labs in Mexico where they take the base precursor chemicals and then do the one operation. And now you have fentanyl. And remember, 100x the efficiency, um, you can, in a very small container, like on one person, uh, get what used to take you know, a truck across the border and then you, you can bring it to the U.S. So, so fentanyl has just like completely overtaken the U.S. It's extremely cheap and extremely potent. And the thing is with fentanyl, because it's so potent, if you just have a few more grains, you can look this up, like grains of the, the actual raw substance in the, the formula, right? You, you overdose. And so it, it's just this, this terrible, terrible thing that um, is now all coming up from Mexico, right? And, and I think that the second thing is there's this other trend, and this is the, the Sam Kionis book, is that meth... Uh, has changed in formula. So traditionally, methamphetamine was invented in Japan uh, and, and it was used in actually like the Japanese military and the, the German military. There's a book, I, I haven't read it. I think it's called Blitzed. And it's just talking about how like the Germans were on meth in, in World War II. Like it's because it's amphetamine, right? So it's, it's your, your, it makes you, it's like cocaine. It's, it's, it's increasing your energy levels. Um, meth is made with ephedrine which is uh, like the thing that's in like decongestant, like cough decongestant, like Sudafed. And so what happened was people rediscovered this in the 80s in the US and they, they started just like creating these meth labs. And this is the, the whole thing with Breaking Bad where they uh, would go get a bunch of stuff at a, a CVS and then they'd cook it up in a, in a kind of like backcountry trailer and, and then you'd kind of have this, this, this drug. That's completely gone away. Like they've locked down the amount of uh, ephedrine that's available. The precursor ephedrine, like you can't get it. It's a, it's a controlled kind of industrial substance. And so what, what's happened with meth is it's actually shifted over to this new type of meth because you can, you can kind of make meth in different ways. Um, that is, uh, it, it has a way worse side effects. Um, and and, and it, it actually accelerates the... So, so if you're a person who's on methamphetamine, uh, the, the ephedrine version, you you decay over time and then you end up like not having teeth and all this other kind of stuff. This new version of meth, it actually has like schizophrenic side effects and, and it actually, it, it's an accelerated decline. Um, and it actually creates like a sense of like you, you kind of want to retreat into something like a tent. There's like a hoarding component to it. And so if you start to kind of like read about this new version of meth, which is now all coming from, from Mexico, um, it, it, there's a lot of explanation to the homeless crisis that's happening in California where it's, it's, there's actually a lot of people on fentanyl and a lot of people on meth, right? So like, and, and meth overdoses are starting to be a thing, which has never been traditionally something, but because there's a lot of these drugs get laced with fentanyl and whatever. So there's a bit of a rant on that, but I think like most people don't have an appreciation for what changed in the market. And it is, it, it is not being addressed because a, fentanyl is easy to get across the border because it's so so concentrated. And we we don't have uh, like a 
a willingness in, in society now to really prosecute drug dealers, right? Like there's this whole decarceration movement, which I'm actually pretty sympathetic to is like, I think putting people in jail for marijuana offenses doesn't really make sense, right? Like in the scheme of drugs, much more harmless than, than other ones. But, but caught up in this is now, you know, in a place like San Francisco, like that, you know, you don't have bail and like, they don't want to prosecute because it's, it's, it's racist to prosecute drug, not even drug dealers. Someone, someone crazy on Twitter is referring to them as drug workers. Like, you, you know, to say like, you know, from prostitute to sex worker, they, they're calling them drug workers. Like, no, if you're selling fentanyl, you're, you're selling death. Like it's just a Russian roulette, like one little increase the amount of, of, you know, dosage, you, you die. And, and so there are a whole bunch of other countries, by the way, this is how they handle it. China being one of them where they just execute drug dealers, right? Like one of the things that the, the kind of like cleanup in China post, post the colonialism is they just executed all the drug, the opium dealers, right? Like the, the actual opioid dealers, Singapore, you know, same thing. Japan has super strict rules on drugs. And I don't think we're ever going to be there in the U.S. I'm not arguing that we should go execute people. But like the maximum penalty should be applied to fentanyl dealers. Like you don't like just casually get into the fentanyl dealing game. Like it's like that is a that's not just like, oh, I'm, I'm you know, some college kid. I'm, I'm selling some weed on the side for for, you know, whatever. Like if you're selling, selling fentanyl, you're, you're selling a deadly substance. And, and, and so we have, as a society have to come to a, a point of view is like, there is no coming back from being a large fentanyl dealer. And it's like life imprisonment and, you know, like serious action. And then I think the other thing is we, we have to take a, I think a way harder line with Mexico about this, right? Like basically Mexico is going to respond to incentives and, and, you know, you can, what, what happened recently, I think in the last like year or two. That, like it turned out that the, like the secretary of defense in Mexico was on, on the like payroll for, for the Sinaloa cartel or something. And I think that the U S got the guy, he was in like the U S and, and we, we arrested him. And then we, we sent him back to Mexico because the, the party there was like, Hey, like we, you know, this, he's a, he's a member of the, the elite. Like let, let's not have him go to prison. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's okay. Say so someone check me if I'm wrong on that, but that's crazy. Like, there should be zero tolerance for, you know, it's one thing to have like Americans and, and we have our own criminal justice system and you have constitutional rights or whatever. But like the the drug cartels should be treated as as, in my view, narco terrorists. Right. Like it's just like and, and the same things that we're willing to do uh, to Al Qaeda and ISIS, like we should be doing the same things in Mexico if they're not willing to do it themselves. So I, I think we should, they're, they're, you know, our biggest trading partner, like we should give them the sovereignty to clean it up themselves. But if they're not going to hit a certain level, like it should just be unacceptable. It, it, it is, they are waging war on American streets by, by a lack of action. And, and so that should just, in my view, it's like more Americans die as a result of the Mexican government not cracking down on, on you know, drug cartels than anything else. So it's it's like having 9-11 happen every single year. It's just kind of silently happen on the streets of of San Francisco and LA and, and you know all these places. So yeah. I, I think that's a great teaser to uh to a future episode that we should do on homelessness, what are the roots of homelessness, on on crime. We should get into what's happening in El Salvador and if, if that is a uh you know, if there are any learnings um that can be applied elsewhere. 
um, and just broader kind of SF dysfunction. We should perhaps uh, perhaps wrap here as we've uh, as we've gone an hour and thirty minutes. This was a good wide ranging conversation, and we uh, we have some good upcoming uh, not only topics as there's just uh, preluded but uh, previewed, but also guests in uh, in Catherine Boyle, Nadia Asparova, um, and also Jacob Siegel um, from Tablet, who had a great piece on disinformation. Um, and as well, I think an is- Israel scholar um, that Antonio is working on. So we can talk about what's going on there. Yeah, Antonio's going to Israel. Maybe he's going to get out there in, in the protests. I can see Antonio on the streets of Tel Aviv. Yes. And is, is also, uh, I believe, uh, the I believe the circumcision is is uh, either this month or next. So we'll be. I'm, uh, I'm just glad we're not going to have to talk about it ever again in, in <laughs> like two weeks. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, Dan, uh, thanks as always. And um, yeah, see you next time. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months, and it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for growing startups looking to hire marketers. Hiring is hard, and the time it takes for founders could be better leveraged elsewhere. Marketer Hire pre-vets top-notch marketers across a dozen roles. Whether you need help with growth marketing, SEO, lifecycle content, or any other aspect of growth marketing strategy, it's free to use and you only pay if you end up hiring someone. If you want to hire a great marketer the easy way, Marketer Hire is offering Moment of Zen listeners a $1,000 credit for first-time customers. Go to marketerhire.com slash MOZ and use code MOZ for your $1,000 credit. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.